Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the Executive Director of Naomi's House. And since last December, when we partnered with Serve the World and Chapel Street, we have been hard at work building the Gathering Place, the only day program for victims of sexual exploitation in the area. It was in January of 2020 that we felt the Lord was calling us to consider the gathering place. We knew that nothing like this existed in our county. So we took the step of faith, we started praying, we started asking God, what would this look like? What do women need? What are the resources that we have that we can put together in order to provide a day program that gives more women the opportunity to find hope and healing? This is a place where we can serve up to 40 women a year four times the number of women we've been able to serve in residential and we are thrilled to see women begin to take advantage of this beautiful space and the services that we can provide educationally, vocationally, therapeutically so that they can begin again. Hi, I'm Amanda Bagnall. I'm the clinical director of day program services here with Naomi's House. When we had the opportunity to expand services at the gathering place to reach more women, <laughs> I got really excited about what that could look like for our community and for the women that we serve. We have a young woman who's traveling all the way from Chicago on public transportation to receive services here at the Gathering Place. Because we are one of the only day program services that provides this type of care to women who've been exploited, she finds it worth her time to come out here three days a week, travel two hours just to meet with our case managers, do the day program, and receive therapeutic services. God knew and he saw what our needs were and he called up the church to meet those needs. And not only did you raise $200,000 to equip us to close on this space, but you went above and beyond. And through that partnership, we were able to cover all the expenses of the renovation. So we're sitting here today in the most beautiful space, welcoming space, and we're starting to fill it already with women who need to hear that there is hope for their future, that there is healing for their trauma, and that together with this community, with the church, with our volunteers, with our staff, we will walk alongside of them and hope for them that their lives can look different and that they can heal from their commercial sexual exploitation. Many of you are probably aware, uh, no doubt aware, that for many years now we have had a tradition as a church family of choosing uh, one ministry partner, either locally or globally, uh, to give a gift to at the end of the year during the Advent season, uh, the month of December. Last year that partner was Naomi's house and we um, set a goal uh, to raise $200,000 above and beyond our budget um, in December just to help them uh, achieve that project that we actually not only raised 200, we raised 300 thousand dollars and gave it to them, and that was a, a tremendous success. We celebrate that today with the work that they were doing uh, that we were just told about in the video, and we have selected a new partner for this December, uh, which we're going to announce next week in our services, and it's one I'm very excited about, and I think you will be too when you hear about it. And we're going to set a, a bold goal again as a church family to reach that, so we can serve the world, which is the name of our outreach and missions. Uh, efforts here. So thank you for being involved in last year's and we hope that you'll be involved as we uh, announce our new partner uh, next week. Well our four sons are now all grown up and out of the house. Our youngest is 24 which is hard to believe. Uh, our oldest is 31. Two of the boys are married. 
Uh, but a few years ago, all four of them happened to be home. I think it was for an Easter weekend. Uh, it happened to be a really nice, warm weekend, early spring. And one of the things they love to do together when they're all home, which isn't that often anymore, is they love to play, play basketball in the driveway. This is them out in front of our house in Batavia. Uh, playing one of their winter games, which get very competitive, which you can probably imagine. Usually end up with a basketball being punted over our neighbor's house, but that's a whole different story. Uh, but one of my favorite things to do when they're all home is to sit on the porch and watch them play basketball in the driveway. So I was sitting out on the porch uh, watching them play, and it was, like I said, kind of a warm day, and uh, I was getting a little worn out from all that watching them playing basketball. And so I uh, went into the refrigerator in our garage and uh, grabbed a, a can of cold root beer. I don't usually have root beer, but that's what we had in, in the uh, refrigerator. So I grabbed the can, went up back out to the porch. And then when I finished my uh, root beer, I took the now empty can back into the house and went to put it in the recycle bin, which I'm supposed to do. And when I, um, you know, in our, in our recycle bin and our garbage are in the same kind of... Uh, drawer that pulls out. You probably have a similar situation. So one of the bins is garbage, one of the bins is recycled. I pulled it out, and right as I went to drop it in, I noticed there wasn't a plastic lining bag in the recycle bin, which there was supposed to be. So I figured, well, someone probably took the bag out to the recycle can in the garage and just forgot to put the liner back in. Or, I thought, maybe we're out of those bags. So I had a choice to make. I can either walk the two steps over to where we keep those bags and check to see, and if there was one, take it out and go back over and put it into the recycle bin and then drop my can in, or I could assume we were out. I mean, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and so I'm not proud to admit that that's what I chose to do, so I just dropped my can into the regular garbage I mean, what's one more can in the landfills of America? And I went back out to watch basketball. Some of you are thinking I'm a bad person right now. <laughs> a few minutes later, my wife comes out, Lorraine comes out, to watch the boys play basketball. And at the first stoppage of play, she says, okay, uh, who, who forgot to put the b bag back in the recycle bin? And that wasn't me, so I stayed, <laughs> I stayed quiet. And immediately one of the boys said, oh, mom, that's me. I'm sorry, I, I forgot. She said, well, thank you for taking your can. Uh, thank you for taking it out to the garbage, but next time remember to put a bag in. He goes, I got it. And I thought, I'm in the clear. <laughs> and then she said, and who put the root beer can into the garbage? And at that moment, all four boys turned and looked at me and just burst out laughing because they had seen me with the root beer can, and they knew exactly uh, what I had done. Uh, so in a feat of extraordinary laziness, I just left that task to somebody else. And today, uh, Jesus has something to say to me, and I hopefully to us. We're in a series from the Gospel of Mark called Following the King, and we're now 12 weeks in, if you're keeping track, 12 weeks into the Gospel of Mark study. So where are we in the story of Jesus now? Somebody asked me last week after, after the service, now how, where, how, how far into the story are we? How, what, uh, how much time is left until we get to... Uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're, we're pretty far along in the story. Mark moves pretty quickly. Uh, so we have seen already that uh, Jesus has stated his mission early on in the first chapter of Mark. Mark tells us Jesus came to Galilee saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, they don't yet know fully what the gospel is going to be. 
But that's what he came uh, teaching and preaching. He's demonstrated his authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to feed the hungry, to even raise the dead. He's talked openly in recent chapters about what's going to happen to him. In fact, three different times we read Jesus telling his disciples exactly what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 8, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark writes. In chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 9, he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise, but they did not understand. And then in chapter 10, in the passage immediately before what we're going to read today, uh, we read this. He tells them more detail than he's given so far. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay, so three times he's told them what is going to happen. Uh, they are now headed toward Jerusalem, which means they're in the final couple of weeks before all this takes place, and means Jesus is now headed toward the cross. Now, that's the setting for the story we're going to read today, Mark 10, beginning in verse 35. So, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to, up to him and said to him, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism, baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First thing I think we see comes out very obviously in this passage is what I'm calling a kingdom demand. It starts with a kingdom demand. When I was about 25 years old and still single, I had two college degrees, was working on my first master's degree, but I had no job at least no job that paid me uh, any money. I was at the time working my way through grad school as a volunteer basketball coach at Taylor University, been working as a substitute teacher for $35 a day in local high schools and middle schools, was struggling to pay for everything, for my school, schooling, for my apartment, sometimes not even enough to really eat. Uh, I was what is now called an emerging adult. <laughs> That's a real thing now, uh, an emerging adult, and I was ahead of my time at that time. Uh, I knew God had called me to some sort of ministry. I knew that. And I was doing my best to figure all that out. Uh, and I wanted to do something significant for his kingdom. Uh, I was ambitious in that way. But what I really needed was a job. Uh, so I got an idea. I made an appointment with the then interim president of Taylor University, a man named 
uh, Dr. Milo Rediger, the late Dr. Milo Rediger. Uh, so I went right to the top, and I figured I, I'd find some way to, to get him to give me a job. My mother had been his secretary like 30-some years before when she was a student there, so I thought I had a, at least a, a fighting chance. So I put on a tie, walked into his office, I did my best to convince Dr. Rediger that there had to be something I could do on the college campus for which they could pay me. <laughs> And when I was done with, done with my little speech, and I really have no idea what I must have said, uh, but he kind of leaned back in his chair, <sighs> took a deep breath, and he said, young man, I knew I was in trouble right then, but he said, young man, I'm 79 years old, he said. And when I look back over my life, the years between when I was 20 and 30, while I lived them, I thought were a great waste. He paused, then he said, now looking back, I think they were the most productive time in my life. Have a nice day. <laughs> That's what he said. No job offer, nothing. I was like, are we, we're done here? That's it? Uh, and I was a little bit frustrated. Uh, but now, looking back from my perspective, and I'm 65 now, I realized that Dr. Rediger didn't give me a job. He gave me something a lot better. He told me the truth, and he gave me a great bit of wisdom there. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So these two brothers, James and John, former fishermen, who were among the very first men called to leave their nets and follow Jesus, and they did that. They left everything to follow Jesus, and they've been with him now for about three years or so. In fact, back in Mark chapter 3, and we did not, did not preach this uh, little, little uh, set of verses, but in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus actually gives these two brothers a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder. and has a word for that in the original language. We don't know exactly why he chose this nickname for these two guys, but we can kind of guess it has something to do with strong personalities because in Luke chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus and the disciples going into Samaria, and a certain Samaritan village rejects them, and James and John come to Jesus and offer to call down fire from heaven to consume them. Maybe that's why he called them sons of thunder. So they've heard him teach, they've seen the miracles, they've heard him talk about what must happen, although they didn't fully understand that, and they come to him still, knowing he's headed toward Jerusalem, knowing Jesus is talking about his death, they come to him with a wildly ambitious demand, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now can you imagine, can you imagine a teenage son or daughter going to their father and saying, hey pop, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. Now, what father in his right mind goes, sure. Okay, shoot. Just, just tell me what you want. Well, it's going to start with car, right? Maybe then credit card. Right? Who knows what else? Or imagine going to a boss and saying, boss, I'd like for you to do for me whatever I ask. And if he says, well, what would that be? You'd say, 25% raise, maybe more, corner office, extra 30 days of vacation. Oh, can you imagine? We think, who would ever do that? Who would go to a superior? Who would go to the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, and start the conversation like that? But you know, I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about how sometimes we pray. How sometimes I pray. Sometimes Forgetting totally 
to do what we've already done here this morning, to praise him, to offer him my worship, to give him thanks, or to ask him what he would want of me. Instead, jumping right into my list. Please, 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 please. This little conversation ought to make us think a bit. Not just pointing fingers at these young men, James and John, but thinking, how in the same way do I do that sometimes? Now, we need to see that although this is a rather immature demand, um, it does tell us something about how they think about Jesus, what they see in him, what they believe about him. They've seen him heal the sick and feed the hungry. They've seen uh, the crowds thronging to come to hear him teach. They believe he has the power and authority to do anything. They've heard Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. They believe he is and will be the king of Israel. And that's good. They just don't fully understand what kind of king. Now notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, like I might, if one of my kids came to me like that. Whoa, whoa, whoa there, fellas. Slow your roll just a bit. Who exactly do you think you are? And who do you think you're talking to? He doesn't say that. He simply says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? What are you asking? Now, this is pretty typical of Jesus. He loved to respond to questions with a question. He loved to ask questions. If we look through just a, a cursory glance at the Gospels, we see in John chapter 1, when Andrew approaches him after John the Baptist says, hey, that's the one you want to follow, Jesus turns around and says to him, what do you want? Or what are you looking for? In John chapter 5, Jesus asks a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, do you want to get well? In Mark chapter 4, when their boat is nearly sunk, sinking in a storm and Jesus is sleeping, the terrified disciples wake him up and say, don't you even care that we're going to drown? He says, why are you so afraid? And then in Mark chapter 8, he asks his followers, who do you say that I am? And Jesus asks questions, I think, because questions have a way of revealing what we think, what we feel, who we are. Questions challenge faulty assumptions. Questions can prompt confession. So with this question, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus isn't promising to do whatever they ask. He's rather calling them to reveal themselves, to reveal their hearts, to declare their ambitions before him. He's really asking for confession. And then with either unimaginable boldness or complete naivete, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, what is it exactly that they're asking for here uh, in, in, in the ancient culture? They are picturing Jesus as king. There were kings in those days, emperors and kings. A king like King David, a king that sat in his, in his uh, palace on his throne and had a seat up to his right, a seat to his left, like the, the prime minister and the secretary of state or whatever they had in the ancient world. They're imagining themselves sitting in those positions of power and authority and significance. Now, this isn't all bad, actually. I learned a long time ago on basketball teams that it matters where you sit, right? If you're not one of the starting players out on the floor, it matters where you sit on the bench. But nobody wants to be that last guy in the bench because the closer you're sitting to where the coach is, the more likely you are to actually play. So in the years when I was a bench 
guy. We would jockey at the end of the mission to make sure we weren't the last guy, you know, sitting next to the, to the Gatorade bucket and the manager and stuff. It matters where you sit. Or maybe you're thinking about, maybe you think about the old playground ritual of choosing up sides for kickball. You know, nobody wants to be that last kid chosen, right? You want to be the first guy chosen, if at all. So they believe Jesus is king. They want to be close to him. They want to share in his glory. All good. But the problem is, they want the glory and honor for themselves. They want to be picked first. They want Jesus to pick them first. They don't yet understand that the pathway to glory goes in a different direction. And that leads, secondly, to a kingdom rebuke. A kingdom rebuke. Some time ago, years ago now, I read a story about golfer Tiger Woods when he was at the peak of his career, you know, long before the personal troubles that derailed his career. I read a story where a young fan approached him as he was practicing uh, one day and wanted an autograph. And as uh, uh, Tiger was signing the autograph, the, the young man said, I want to be just like you, Tiger. I want to be just like you. And while he heard things like that a lot and usually would just ignore the comment and stay out of a, not get into a conversation with somebody because he was always besieged by fans, for some reason this time, he, talked, he, he spoke back to the young man. He said, no, son, uh, no, you don't. Unless you're ready to be out here eight to ten hours a day, hitting a thousand golf balls a day until your hands bleed, and doing that every day of your life, you don't want to be like me, he said. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So James and John come to him with this ambitious demand. And actually, Matthew, and you may be recalling this somewhere, but Matthew's gospel tells us it's their mother who comes to Jesus with this demand. That adds a whole different dimension to the story. Now, we don't know if she came to Jesus first and said, um, have you noticed my boys? They're really above average, you know. Or whether she came afterward and, and whether she was prompting the whole thing. You know, go, go, ask him, ask him. You know, we don't really know, but that adds a dimension to the story. But Jesus hears them, and then he offers them a clear rebuke. You do not know what you're asking. You want to follow me? Good. You want to be near me? Good. You want a place in my kingdom? Good. You want to share in my glory? Great. But you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Throughout the Bible, the, a cup, the cup is an image used uh, to portray either blessing, the blessings of God, or judgment. Judgment over sin and unrighteousness. Now here Jesus uses the cup to refer to God's judgment over sin. Remember, on the night before he died, which we'll get there in a, couple, uh, in a few weeks after Advent, uh, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew tells us he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Meaning he was facing the judgment of God on all sin and evil. The baptism refers to being totally immersed in a new way of life, a way of self-sacrifices, and this includes his impending death. And when Jesus says this, are you able, 
These two guys say, we are. We are able. And I was reading that this week thinking, really? I mean, it's like they haven't heard a word he's said. They're like the second grader in class who wants the teacher to call on him. Oh, oh, pick me, pick me. Yes, yes. What was the question? You know, they, they don't remember. Jesus gives them a rather cryptic response then. Notice verse 39. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus is saying that James and John will indeed share in his suffering and death. Not for the same reasons, but they will share. We know from history, church history, that James, this James, was the first of the twelve to be martyred. Beheaded by King Agrippa in about 44 AD, about 10 years after the resurrection or so. John would go on to become the Apostle John, writing his gospel and the book of Revelation, live a long life, but he would be exiled by the Roman Empire to the island of Patmos. And there he would live out his days in, in relative suffering there. Jesus is saying that the places of honor in his eternal kingdom have already been determined by the Father, and that their desire for power and glory, these two young men, is going to pass through suffering and death. Jesus rebukes their immature and misguided demand because he wants to teach them something important. And this is what he wants to teach us today, and that's the third point, true kingdom greatness. He wants to teach them about true kingdom greatness. Verse 41, And when the ten heard it, this is the other ten of the twelve, they began to be indignant. That word is a strong word in the Greek. It means angry. It means uh, uh, incensed, offended. They are indignant at James and John. Now I'm going to pause here for a second. Why do you think the other ten are indignant with James and John? Is it because they believe that James and John have insulted their Lord by coming to him with, a, with this demand to be on his right and his left and his glory? Or is it because James and John got there first? and wanted what they all wanted. Because we know they've been arguing between themselves about who was the greatest, who was the closest to him. I think, that, I think they were simply jealous that they went first. They were indignant. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. If you have little journal, your own Bible, you should circle that sentence right there. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we see a couple of things here. First, Jesus defines true greatness. He defines true greatness. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them. Does that sound familiar at all in our culture today? Now, it's very contemporary to me. He's talking about the ancient world. He's talking about the Herodians and the Romans with their worldly definitions of power and authority. But think for just a moment about our own culture, about where we live today, about what our cultural definition of greatness is. We usually think of a great person is someone who's accomplished a great deal or is enormously talented, a combination of accomplishment and talent, a great athlete or maybe a, a, a great musician or a great artist. Greatness. We think of maybe um, greatness as a way to get influence in culture or in cities or in a nation. Power, authority, wealth, politics, 
We think that's the way to, to make a difference. That's the way to gain influence. Or sometimes we just think of sheer celebrity. Our culture worships celebrity. Sometimes people are famous just for being famous. And we listen to them as they sell us products. Greatness. The truth is we aspire in our culture to all these things. Our culture preaches, us, preaches to us to climb the ladder of success, to climb the ladder of status and wealth and position to become significant. And interestingly, research is now showing that there seems to be an inverse relationship, an upside-down relationship with what our culture te- uh, preaches as greatness and what we experience as happiness or joy and fulfillment. There is um, actual research that shows that the pursuit of happiness, that is, trying to make myself happy, is actually counterproductive. Living my life in order to fulfill my, my self-desires is actually counterproductive and does not produce joy and happiness, but produces a kind of addiction to pleasure and fulfilling my own wishes. In other words, happiness and meaning are not found by trying to make yourself happy. Even secular research is showing this now. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus taught us not to climb up the ladder, but to climb down the ladder. That's the direction for joy and meaning and fulfillment. True greatness is not position or power or glory. True greatness is not found in accomplishment, in career, in the pursuit of happiness. True greatness is not found in the self at all. Jesus says true greatness is found in others. True greatness is found in service. The second thing Jesus does here is to define what it means to follow him. He defines discipleship, verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here he turns our idea of greatness completely upside down. And then he goes back to talking about his coming death. Three times he's told them that this is going to happen, this must happen, but now he tells them why it must happen. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that word ransom in the ancient world um, is what you would... Is, is, w- w- meant freedom price. I had trouble saying that, but it means freedom price. What you would pay in the ancient world to set free someone who is bound in slavery. So Jesus becomes our example of greatness, because even though he's king, he serves us, but, but he's more than an example. He's more than that, because he's going to the cross, not just to show us how to serve, but to actually pay a ransom his body, and his blood, the price that sets us free from sin. And because Jesus dies for us, we can die to ourselves, to our need for position and power, to our need to satisfy our selfish desires. And when we die to ourselves, we are then free to serve, to serve others. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our king, and that's what discipleship looks like. During my now 35 years here at Chapel Street, formerly First Baptist of Geneva, and 22 years as senior pastor, I had the privilege of knowing and working with so many gifted and dedicated people, many of them here today in this room. Uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to so many faithful men and women who served and gave their time and talents and treasure uh, to his church and to Christ himself. Learned so much from so many of them. And one of those people uh, was a man named Bill Braun. A lot of you will remember Bill. Um, Bill and um, his wife, Bernadine, attended here for over 40 years, I think. Uh, Bill passed away in 19, excuse me, 2015 at age 86. I had the honor of sharing in his memorial service. Uh, his daughter, Chris, was our children's pastor for over 20 years. She's right down here. I asked her if I could share this story. And during his time, uh, Bill did almost everything you can do in a church, right here at this church. Directed the choir. He taught Sunday school. He was a high school youth leader. He served several terms as church chairman. So he did everything in leadership you could do at a church. But here's what I learned from Bill. This would have been back in the early 1990s when our boys were still very young. One Sunday morning, it was between services. I think we had three services here at the time. It was very busy. But one of our boys was going through a kind of a separation anxiety time. We drop him off in the nursery. He'd cry and scream and cry and scream. And that's hard to do as a parent. So it was in between services, and I wanted to just, just go down and try to walk by quickly and peek in and see how he was doing in, in the room. And I ran downstairs, walked in there, just took a peek around the corner, and I saw Bill holding that little boy, rocking him in a rocking chair. And he was still whimpering and crying, but Bill was taking care of him. Now, if you knew Bill, you know he, um, had, he was opinionated. <laughs> he had his ideas about how the church should go, how things should be. He was not shy about those things. And he could be maybe a little bit intimidating to some people, maybe even to me sometimes. But that day when I looked in that room, I learned something about Bill. And I learned something from Bill. And here's what Jesus was talking about. But whoever would be great among you would be your servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he gives life as a ransom for many. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, we thank you for your word today. Forgive us for sometimes coming to you kind of like James and John, with our own agenda, with our own desires, with our own wish list, with what we think we need. Teach us instead to come to you in humility. Teach us to ask for what you want. Teach us the meaning of true greatness, how you see things. Teach us to be those who serve rather than those who seek to be served. Lord Jesus, teach us to follow you. It's in your name that we pray.